We on? There we go. All right. My name is Chandler Haggerty, and welcome to Teen Sunday. There's about three times as many of you now as there were in first service. So, <laughs> between the every other rows and, wow, that whole thing is actually, there's like five people over there, so that's impressive. All right, so Teen Sunday, what I'm going to be talking about today is three truths for sticking with God through trials. As we started with the first planning meeting and just kind of deciding what exactly we're going to be going over today, the same themes started coming up from among all of us. Themes like God not giving up on us even when we abandon him, growing more like Jesus or trusting the goodness of God, and growing from trials or disciplines. So today I'm going to be going through James chapter 1. That's where you can turn your Bibles, James chapter 1. I'm going to be highlighting three specific truths for sticking with God through trials. Because if we as Christians don't understand these truths, we might, we might decide to run from trials. We might misunderstand what God is going to be doing through trials. Or worse, we might let them misconstrued our ideas of what God is doing, or what our misconstrued our ideas of God. So what I'm going to be going over today is the three specific truths, or what are the purpose of trials, what is the right heart response to them, and what is our outward response supposed to be? So our big idea is Christians are called to stick with God through trials. If there's one thing I want you to get, it's that. We're called to stick with God through trials. So James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God to the Lord, to the, of, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I'm going to stop right there, just from the top. We have the book of James. It was written by James. I think some people believe he was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And it's written to Jews that are Christians, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. At this point, all the Jews weren't in one nation. This was one of the main ways that the gospel could go forward. They would pilgrimage back to Israel, and then they'd have to go back to their own countries. And that's how the gospel got out. So starting in verse 2, where the bulk of our text is going to be, My brethren, count out all joys when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It specifically says trials. That would be in contrast to other things. Sometimes as Christians, we just accept everything with thanksgiving. Um, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We just decide to accept everything like hallelujah, but we don't realize that sometimes they're supposed to have different purposes. They're supposed to do different things in our lives. I heard one pastor, he was comparing afflictions and blessings, and he said, just because we accept both with thanksgiving doesn't mean we should confound the two. doesn't mean that we should both just necessarily just let them go the same. We're supposed to realize that they have different purposes in our lives. So there's two other things that we sometimes confuse, that we sometimes confuse trials with. The first one would be a blessing. In the sermon where I heard that, he was specifically talking about singleness, and he was comparing unwanted singleness versus the gift of singleness. Unwanted singleness would be an affliction. That's something that you don't really want, in, but the purpose of it is to mature you or grow you. But there's also the blessing of singleness, where you don't desire necessarily for a spouse, and God has given you that way so we can amplify your ministry. That's exactly what blessings are. It's good. They're amplifiers from God that are supposed to help you along the way. This is in contrast to trials, which have the specific purpose of maturing us or growing us as Christians. The other thing we might confuse them with is judgment. And what I mean by this is God's wrath. If you're a Christian and you've come to faith in Christ, if you believe that Christ's death on the cross paid for your sins in full, then you don't experience the wrath of God. That's not something you undergo. Christ took all of that on the cross. 
you don't experience the wrath of God. So those are the two things that they're not. They're not blessings. That's not what we're necessarily talking about here. And it's not judgment. We're talking about trials. So let's see what it says about that. Verse 2, my brethren, count out all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Knowing that the testing of your faith, what is your faith? Your faith is everything you know about God, what you believe in him to be true, what you believe to not be of him, how you believe him to interact with human beings, what judgment is, everything could be called, everything that you know about God could be called about your faith about God. So the testing of everything you know necessarily about God, his character, what he is like, the testing of that produces patience. We have to be patient during trials. Trials, I have a friend who, she likes drinking tea and she got me into it. Trials are like hot water on a tea bag. They bring out what's on the inside. We've all heard this before. But what I've noticed about drinking tea recently is that the temperature of the water matters as well. The hotter the water, the quicker what's inside comes out. It's the same thing with trials. The testing of your faith, the trials that your faith will undergo produces patience. You have to be patient during these trials, trusting the goodness of God in spite of the hot water circumstances that might be around us. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces or works patience, that's the result of it. But let patience have its perfect work. Have its perfect work. That's the idea that it's been worked to completion. What it was producing while you were under that trial has now come to maturity. Let's patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You're mature. You've trusted God through the trials. There's no one big trial that we're all going to be going through in life. It'll be probably a series of many trials interspersed throughout all of our lives. And even at the end of that, even if we were to trust God through all of them, we still wouldn't be perfect. But the purpose of them is still the same. It's to grow us closer to Christ, to allow us to rely on him more, even when we don't want to, even when we want to go our own ways. God supplies the means and the ends for maturity. We see that through verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask it of God, who gives liberally to all without reproach, and let it be given to him, and, let it, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven tossed by the waves. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. It starts out with any of you lacks wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, excuse me. What this is talking about is how do we stick with him through this? When everything else seems like I should go my own way, I should believe this about God. God isn't good in the middle of trials. I don't know how to get through this in a good way. The only way for me to get through this and for things to be okay is for me to sin. If you don't know how to do that, what we're supposed to do, what we're commanded to do in this verse is to ask God for wisdom. How do we get through this? How do we do this without sinning? How do we do this without going our own way? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask it of God, who gives liberally and without reproach. First is liberally. Um, let's say you had a five-year-old who's running around in the front lawn, and they're hot and sweaty, and it's 90 degrees outside, and they're parched. They come in for water. Are you going to be like, okay, you get X amount of water? No, you give them the glass of water. You give it to them liberally. You want them to have that water. Second, it's without reproach. He's, God isn't going to be scolding you like, shame on you. You didn't know how to do this by yourself? We as humans aren't nearly as smart as we think we are, and our ways of doing things are not God's ways. So he says, ask me how to do it. Ask of wisdom, and I will give it to you. I will give it to you liberally, and I will give it without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, is like a sea driven, tossed by the waves. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
for he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. What this is talking about is the manner in which we're supposed to be asking God for stuff, specifically wisdom. So in this situation, we're supposed to ask him to have faith, faith that both the wisdom he will give us is the right wisdom, that this is good, that this is the way it's supposed to be. But second, if we believe that this is the way it's supposed to be, then we're going to follow through with that. It's not, okay, God, show me how you do this, and then I'm going to kind of like compare it and decide which one's better for me. Should I really do my own way now that you've given me the right way to do it, or am I going to go your way? No. We're asking in faith. We're clinging to him. On that ship, clinging to the raft boat, even as it might be tossed by the waves, even as everything might be turned upside down, we're still trusting God in the midst of that trial. So we ask in faith that it's good and that he will give it to us. That sort of takes up our first point, our first truth. There's a purpose for trials. That purpose is maturity, testing our faith, testing of all we know about God. It produces patience. We have to rely that God is good. We have to remember that his way is better than our way. This next portion of the chapter, verses 9 through 11, it doesn't necessarily fit into either of the first truths that I was specifically going to be highlighting out of the text, but I still think I'd be amiss not to go over it. So I'm going to go over it quickly. Verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers with the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. What this verse is doing is it's specifically highlighting two different people groups. You have the rich, those who seem to have everything in life, and the poor, those who don't have anything. And there's two specific things that he sort of highlights, and it's basically their reactions or what we can see from each of them when they go through trials. When we go through that trial, that hot water, that tribulation, the affliction, whatever it is, something we want, something we like, something we're leaning on is likely being stripped away. He's comparing this to is essentially eternity, when all of this earth will pass away, when God comes again and everything we held to on this earth is stripped away. So there's two situations. You kind of have, he highlights two different people. One who has nothing on this earth, and one who has everything on this earth. Because in both cases, the earth is taken from them. So what are the two responses? What are the two things we can see? Let the lowly brother, he who has nothing, glory in his exaltation. He doesn't have anything to lose. Everything that's going to be stripped away with this earth, he doesn't have it to begin with. So either way, he doesn't lose anything. But instead, he gains everything. The riches we have in Christ is exemplified all the more. The second one is the rich, the rich in his humiliation. Because as the flower of the field passes away, no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat, and it withers with the grass. Its flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. The person who seems to have it all together, the person who has that awesome job lined up with that nice paycheck, the person who has the car, who has the family he wants, everything, that house, that nice neighborhood, I mean, the perfect lawn, don't even get me started on that. I mean, the person who has it all, all that is going to pass away. The person who seemed to have everything by our earthly standards, it will be shown that he has nothing. If he's saved, then he will receive everything that the lowly brother received, all the riches we have in Christ. Our adoption, our identity in Christ are sealed, the riches that are there, and inheritance waiting for us in heaven. He still gets that, but everything else will fade away. So going on to our second truth, there's a right heart response in trials. James chapter 1, verse 12 now. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So it starts out with saying blessed. 
I could spend the next five minutes trying to define blessed for you, but I'm not. I'm just going to leave it as good. Yes, this is awesome. Well done that this man has endured temptation. It's talking about a man it's just a generic man who has endured temptation. The endured temptation is what identifies this guy. The specific thing he's highlighting or marking about this person is that he's endured temptation, that he's resisted temptation. He's saying this is good about this person. So what is temptation? Temptation is an active or passive pull away from God. It's an active or passive pull away from God. It's that carrot on the end of the stick that's dangling out in front of us. It's that peanut butter on the mousetrap. It's something that's going to lead us away from God, specifically in our heart response to him. You see, when we go through hot water situations, we tend to revert back to our old ways. Our old ways of thinking, our old beliefs, our old speech patterns. It all tends to come out when we're under pressure. So what we're called to is to resist that. Reminds me of the lyrics by 10th Avenue North. Hallelujah, we are free to struggle. We're not struggling to be free. We've been saved. Your blood bought and makes us children. Children, drop your chains and sing. We're called to let go of that stuff, to let go of those temptations, to resist it, because it's only going to result in death. Instead, there is life with God, life how it was supposed to be lived. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make me to know the path of life, and in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. With God is life, life the way it was supposed to be lived. It says it here in the text, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life. Now, the crown of life, I do believe to some degree, it's talking about a some sort of reward up in heaven. It's mentioned one other place in scripture. I don't know exactly what it is, but I can read the text for you. Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. For behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you will be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Two spots in scripture by two different writers. So I do believe it's something in heaven for us. There's a reward specifically waiting for those who resist temptation. In both cases, it's resisting and clinging to God. That results in the crown of life. But furthermore, it results in life. Life by being connected to God. And you'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Specifically, the crown of life, it's promised to those who love him. So we should probably talk about love for a second. Some people, if they're younger, they'll talk about falling in or out of love. It's an emotion, right? And then you go to older people, and they'll tell you it's a decision. It's something you have to wake up and choose to do every single day in every one of your specific actions. I think both of these are really close to love, but I think they both flew past what love is in search of the source of it. Because at the end of the day, it's a code of conduct. Whether or not it's an emotion or an action or a choice, it should result in the same conduct. Putting someone else ahead of yourself. Whether you're driving to your spouse's or your fiance's house in the middle of the night because you want to see them, or if it's a choice to be with them, a choice to comfort them, a choice to put them ahead of yourself. Whether it's a choice or you do it freely, when they put their laundry next to the laundry basket and you have to pick it up and put it inside of the hamper, I mean, a word. Either way, it should result in the same code of conduct, the same way you interact with them. Whatever the source be, the action should still be the same. The action, this love here, this code of conduct, the way that we should be interacting with God and with our neighbors is what drives our resistance. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. The love him, the action of putting God, what he wants, ahead of what we want, is exemplified by the enduring or the resisting of temptation. If we love God and we choose to put what he wants ahead of us, 
then it's going to look like enduring temptation and trials, resisting the idea that what we want is better than what he wants, putting his wants, his desires, his will for our lives ahead of our own. So let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone with evil. Does it make any logical sense that the God who beckons us come, who wants to show us life, the God who makes us know the path of life, and in his presence is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, the one who has a reward waiting for us if we resist temptation is the same one who brings the temptation, the same one who tries to draw us away, the same one who puts the peanut butter on the mousetrap? That doesn't make any sense. Why would the one who wants to give us life also be trying to draw us away, to lead us to death, as we're going to see later in the passage? God isn't the one who tempts us. God is not tempt. He's not tempted by evil. He knows what's right. He knows what's wrong. He knows what's purity, what's life, what is good, and he knows what's death. He specifically is drawing us towards life, connection with him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. When each one is tempted, he is drawn away of his own desires and enticed. When desire has been conceived, it brings forth sin. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. When each one is tempted, he's drawn away of his own desires. Our desires are what kill us. So we should probably talk about what specifically a desire is. There can be a couple things that desires are. It can either be a right desire for a wrong thing, or it can be a wrong desire for the right thing. Something wrong that we want, and we're going to be filling that desire with something good. We abuse it. Or we can have the right desire for something good, but we misunderstand it, and we try to fill that hole with something else. Either way, it's misconstrued. It's not the right desire for the right thing, which should be God. So it results in death, it says. When desire is conceived, it brings forth sin. This desire, this thought that's taken root in your head, this belief that something is better than God, when that desire has taken root, conceives, it results in an action. In youth group, we're talking about you do what you do because you believe what you believe. Sorry. You do what you do because you want what you want because you believe what you believe. You do. Your actions are controlled by your desires, what you want, which is controlled by your beliefs. This is exactly what it's talking about here. When desire has conceived, when this thought that something is better than God has taken root, it brings forth a desire, this want. When this desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, an action. And sin, when it is full-grown, brings forth death. The result of sin is death, for the wages of sin is death. Separation from God, that's how we sort of talk about it. You're separated in hell. That's why hell is so bad, is how it usually goes, because it's separated from God. I think John Owen kind of sums it up nicely when he talks about it. He says, to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away, to cut off, the principle or source of all his strength, vigor, and power, so that he cannot act or put forth any proper action of his own, unquote. To be cut off from one's source, to be cut off so that you cannot live life, to suffocate it so detrimentally that it can't have any action, any will of its own. That's the same idea here. It separates us from our source of life. Our source of life is God, as we saw. He makes us know the path of, his, of life, and his presence is joy and pleasures forevermore. With God is life. Sin separates. It separates us from that life. Sin is separation, both now and in eternity. Each time we choose to choose, each time we choose sin, we're putting our distance between us and God. We make space in that relationship. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be drawing closer to him, maturing, relying on him more, trusting his goodness, having the right heart response. 
Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, for every good and every perfect gift comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights, for which there is no variation or shadow of turning. So if we have this idea that temptation is drawing us away from God, there's something else that's teasing us and saying, I'm better than God. Follow me. Do this. Go revert back to your own ways. Pick up your old chains. Enslave yourself back to sin. Separate yourself from the goodness of God. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. It's exactly what verse 16 is talking about. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, for every good gift comes, and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights. This idea of the Father of lights, lights is kind of in reference to the stars. That's the idea here. The Father of lights, the one who made the stars, the one who put beauty in the sky, the one who made creation, the one who created everything, put joy and happiness, goodness in this world, that's the one where every good, every good thing comes from. There's a sin and it seems good. It's only because it's twisting the goodness of God and making it seem otherwise, which there is no variation or shadow due to turn. The idea that there is the lights, the stars in the sky, the constellations, they slightly change in the sky depending on the season you're in. That's not the same case with God. God doesn't change. God doesn't move. In our Sunday school class, we're talking about how God doesn't move. He's omnipresent. He's always there. So if we feel far from him, we can be reminded that he's there, spatially. But also relationally, there's a different aspect to it. When we put sin between us and God, it separates us from God. Each time we see what seems to be change with God, we say, you don't feel close to me in this situation. I'm just doing something and it doesn't feel like you're close to me. That's because we put space between us and God. We've sinned. There's separation there to some degree. Each time we look in the Bible and we see that God changes mind, or it looks like God moved, God didn't move. God didn't change. Man changed. It talks about on he regretted that he made Saul king. That wasn't because God just woke up and said, you know, I don't really like this dude anymore. No, it's because Saul had changed his heart. He'd moved away from God which there's no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creature. Of his own will, which is good will, in case you didn't get the gist, God is good. That's what we're supposed to be reminding ourselves of. So of his desires, of his own will, what is his will? That he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we were brought forth, our very salvation. We see sin, uses that sort of pregnancy analogy of giving birth, and it brings forth sin. Our own desires, our own wants, brings forth sin and death. God's desires brings forth life, our salvation, our restoration. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, the gospel, that we might be kind of first fruits of, our cre- of his creatures. You see, this isn't the end goal. We're essentially the first fruits here on earth. It's what's in view here is not necessarily the first generation of Christians, but all Christians on earth. Why? Because we're not matured. This isn't the end goal here. We're not meant to stay like this. We're the first fruits here on earth because the result of the gospel is still yet to see. The final fruits are glorification. Those whom he foreknew, those he predestined. Those who he predestined them, he also justified in the past tense. Those he also sanctified. Those he also glorified. All in the past tense. It's all a done deal. The final fruit will come. What we're seeing here on this earth is only the first fruits of that. Though we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God gives good gifts. Remember the goodness of God in trials. He doesn't change. If something seems like God isn't there, it's likely because we put distance between us and God.
So moving on to the third truth, there's a right outward response in trials. We've touched on there's a purpose for trials, and that's our maturity. And maturity first takes place in the heart, the right heart response in trials, to resist going our own way. Our third one is there's a right outward response in trials. An inward response should dictate an outward response. If there's not, something's wrong. Verse 19, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So then, that's kind of like a therefore or if-then statement. If then what? Well, if verse 18, then what he's going to say. If verse 18 is, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we, that we might be kind of first fruits of his creatures. If then you've been saved. If then this is the first fruits and you're going to be mature, you're going to be glorified one day, then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If what we're supposed to be going towards is closer to God, a better relationship with him, removing that sin, removing that distance between us and God relationally, then let's push towards that all the more. If that is what's good, then we should push towards that. Excuse me. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What is the wrath of man? That's our actions. Wrath, I sort of had generally defined it for most of my life as anger unleashed. Our actions controlled by sin. This being contrast to meekness, strength under control. Wrath would be strength controlled by sin, strength essentially out of control. It's controlled by sin, it's controlled by our emotions, our anger. That's what we're talking about here. For the wrath of man, for our actions being controlled by our sin, isn't going to produce the righteousness, the goodness of God that we should be seeking. So then, therefore, verse 21, let us lay aside all wickedness, sorry, all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We're called to let go of our old habits. We're called to let go of our old life. Instead, pursue God. Lay aside all filthiness, all actions, all actions that are dirty, it's wicked, it's disgusting. Put it aside. All overflow of wickedness, those actions which are bad that come out of your heart, those things that show up in the world around you. We're called to set that aside. Instead, receive with meekness, the strength under control, this docileness, this tameness towards what? The implanted word, the gospel, which is able to save your souls, which should bring about the maturity of more meekness, strength or control, willing to listen, willing to follow God no matter the trial, trusting his goodness all the way, which is able to save your souls. The maturity must be implemented. We see that in verse 22. Be a doer of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who has observed his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in all he does. This maturity, this right heart response, it should result in an action. Be doers of the word. We're supposed to implement it. This maturity that we've had, this wisdom that God's shown us from that first portion, when we ask for God how to do it, we actually have to go through with it. Otherwise, the maturity isn't complete. The maturity isn't going to play, it's just going to continue to fade. It fades all the way, but it's going to fade all the more if it never grew to what it was supposed to be. We have to understand there's a purpose for trials. It's maturity. Second, there's a right heart response. That heart response needs an outward response to set it in concrete. 
need something to solidify the maturity, to take you to completion. Be a doer of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't think that the right heart response is because maybe you don't get angry the way you were. Maybe you don't have that. That suddenly, if it, that's enough. That's not enough. It needs to result in a direct action. You need to act on it. Just because you might be now passive enough towards your siblings where you're willing to let them take your seats, that annoying person at church who always parks in your parking spot, suddenly you're not deciding to key, to key their car or something like that. It needs to be action. It needs to be implemented. You're no longer going to give them that weird look when you see them in church. It needs to result in action. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. So if he's only a hearer, he's like a man who's observed his natural face in the mirror, who sees what he's supposed to do, but immediately forgets what kind of man he was. When you hear the sermon on Sunday by Pastor Gray, and you're called to what you're supposed to do, but you never implement it, you're like, yeah, it's really good, and then you don't do it. It fades away. The maturity was never there. It never finally grew to maturity. The change was never implemented. The sanctification never ran its course. The patience was never fully worked. But he who looks, in contrast, into the perfect law of liberty, the law of liberty, that'd be the standard of love that we're called to as Christians. We've been set free in Christ. I think it's like C.S. Lewis or something like, what, what we know about God, the most important being in the universe, essentially, is the most important thing about us. What we know about the creator, what we know about the person who sustains everything, should be the most important thing about us, both for determining our eternal destination and then finally for how we live our lives here on earth. It should affect how we interact with each other. He who looks into the perfect law of everybody, sees what he's supposed to do, and continues in it, who applies it, who doesn't let it fade, who doesn't let that, yes, that's good, then he goes home and he actually implements it. This one will be blessed, good, yes, well done, in all he does. So verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he's religious, if anyone thinks he's got it, what I know about God is true, he's shown me wisdom, I got this down pat, right? If that's you... He has a challenge for you, the author of our text. He says, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. Okay, you think you're matured? Okay, so watch your tongue for a day, a week, because you're going to see that something happens with your tongue. You see, there's this filthiness in our heart, this old sin nature, and the tongue is the quickest way to take what's inside to the outside. It's the quickest medium that the sin in our heart comes outside. It could say it doesn't hit someone. It could say it doesn't do this, doesn't steal. But it says watch your words because it takes about one second to let that sin on the inside to come outside through your tongue. If anyone thinks his heart has been matured, if anyone thinks he doesn't struggle with something, watch your tongue. It'll really show you. It's the quickest way that something comes out. But deceives his own heart. He's not there yet, essentially. And this one's religion, what he knows about God, if it didn't result in an outward action, then it's useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and Father is this. To visit the orphans and widows in their trouble. To keep oneself unspotted from the world. Congratulations, you made it. We're in the final verse. Um, I wanted to get to this final portion. I probably could have stopped in verse 19 or 20 and just talked about putting off our actions. But I think there's something special here in verse 27 that I want to point out to you guys. That's essentially when you come full circle. When you've gone through the trials and you've matured, you've trusted God through it. You've resisted the temptation to go back to your own ways. Pure and undefiled religion is this. Maturity. Religion, everything we know about God, similar to our faith, is this. To visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. To take away the sin that says they're hurting. I don't need to do that. I'm good at myself. I don't need to bear their burden with them. To take that aside. 
Instead, to be like Christ, the perfect law of liberty, what Christ did, follow his actions, the way he exemplified it here on earth. Servant. For 33 some odd years, he served here on earth and then died. He gave everything he had to sinners like us who had nothing. Those who could never possibly ever think about repaying him back. That's what he gave everything he had to. That's what he challenges you here in the text. Pure and unfiled religion, the final result of everything that we should believe about God, the gospel, his goodness, all those actions culminated is what it should look like. Christ. Giving yourself to those who have nothing. To the orphans, those who don't have a family. They're not established. They don't have a big bank account or anything. The widows, those who might not have someone there to help provide for them. They might not have someone there to lean on. Those who need help in their trouble, in their afflictions. See, we're no longer enduring our own trials, our own afflictions, getting through it by ourselves, trying to trust God through that. Instead, what we're doing here in this part, it's helping others through theirs, coming alongside our fellow Christians and bearing their burdens, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We're never going to be fully matured. We're never going to finally take everything that we should off. All that filthiness and overflow of wickedness, it's never going to be fully removed, but we're still challenged to do it, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Three truths for sticking with God through trials. There's a purpose for trials. There's a right heart response. Furthermore, there's a right outward response in trials. If you don't understand these things, you might decide to run from trials. You might misunderstand them. You might just close your eyes. I think about like riding a bike. When I ride a bike, what I do is I stare at this space where the tire meets the road. It's just a reference point. I don't ride bikes a whole lot, so this could be the completely wrong reference point to look at. But it's something that kind of gets me through it. What we're called to do is look to God in our trials to get us through it. That's what our eyes are supposed to be fixed on. Getting us through it, maturing us, growing those muscles. It's not, shut my eyes, just work through it, I'll be fine. No, don't waste this trial. Count it all joy, instead use it to mature you. Let it run its perfect work. Let it mature you. And second, sorry, thirdly, finally, the danger here if you don't take this truth is it could misconstrue our ideas of God. There's plenty of people in church history who, they run through something bad. Something bad happens. A child dies, they get the wrong diagnosis, and they fall away from the faith. There is the potentiality to go through trials, to be squeezed, not to run to God. Instead, to put more sin, more distance between us and God, have the wrong response, and instead fall away from him. So I challenge you not to do that today. Let's pray. God, thank you for getting me through this. Thank you for the opportunity to do this. I ask that people, as they leave this church and they go throughout the week, that they would stick with you through trials, God. I ask that they wouldn't turn away from you, but that they would see it as an experience where they're supposed to grow through it. They're supposed to let it lead it to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.